0: I don't know if you know this or not, but there are over 45,000 different Christian denominations globally. That's a a staggering number of denominations when you think about it, and I'm not just talking Protestant and Catholic and and Eastern Orthodoxy. I'm talking about all the subcategories within all the subcategories, Pentecostal, Baptist, Methodist, Presbyterian, and hundreds of other denominations. Now, most major denominations were formed out of differences in theology, different interpretations of what the Bible has to say and what the Bible means. But there are thousands of other denominations that have been formed out of strife, out of internal division, simply because Christians could not get along. And this brand of Christian infighting has been going on forever, And it results in what we call a church split. And those splits have created thousands of new churches as well as entirely new denominations whose beginning, sadly enough, came through strife and came through internal division. It reminds me of a story of a man who had been rescued from a desert island where he had lived all alone for 15 years. And before leaving, he gave the rescuers a little tour of the the buildings he had constructed over the years in this uh, one-man town. He said, this here is my house, and uh, over there is my general store. That building here is kind of my recreational center, and and over there is where I go to church. And the... uh, one of the rescuers noticed that there was another building next to that. He said, so what is that building? He said, oh, that's where I used to go to church. <laughs> well, the fact is there's really nothing humorous about church splits, even though we make light of it. Because people are all, often hurt whenever believers disagree to the point of fighting among themselves. And often, both laity and clergy bear emotional wounds for the rest of their life over this infighting. It's just a reality whenever Christians can't get along. And I imagine some of you here this morning know clearly what I'm talking about because perhaps you've been a part of a painful church split or some form of church infighting. You may have had a falling out with another brother or sister in the Lord, and your relationship has never been the same. Or maybe your feelings were hurt while you were serving in your church in some way and you've withdrawn from any kind of official ministry activity. No matter the reasons, no matter the outcome, it's always painful when Christians allow their disagreements to hurt their Christian fellowship. And the reason that I bring all this up is because as we continue in our study in the book of Acts, uh, we are coming to where there are two examples of Christian disputes. And I believe our study of these disagreements and how they were handled, more importantly, will help us to understand how important it is for us as believers to get along. In fact, today I want to go a little bit further and I want to supplement our study from the book of Acts with a portion from the gospel of Matthew because in Matthew, our Lord gives us principles that we must embrace in order to restore broken fellowship. So if you'll take your Bibles first and turn to Acts chapter 15... There we are going to see the first example of conflict and it is recorded in verses one through 35. If you don't have a Bible, uh, there is one in the pew pocket in front of you, unless you're sitting on the front row, I'm sorry, or you can follow along on the screens behind me. We'll be reading, uh, we don't have time to read the entire text this morning, but verses one and two explain clearly what the first dispute was all about. Acts 15, one through two, New International Version reads this way. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed along with some other believers to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. Now, one thing that we have learned through this series is that this particular conflict was nothing new. I mean, almost from the very beginning, Jewish believers had troubles accepting Gentiles. Only a few chapters back, we we read about how hard it was for Peter to believe that a Gentile named Cornelius could actually become a Christian. And if you'll remember, God had to repeat this vision lesson to him three times before Peter really began to understand the situation. But Peter was not alone in his convictions. All Jews back then, as I've said many times during this series, had a prejudiced opinion towards Gentiles. In fact, a Jew in that day might have reacted to Jesus' final words when he said, you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea by saying something like this, that is great, Jesus, let's go. I like the idea of going to Judea because that's where my family is from. But when he said, you shall also be witnesses in Samaria and to the utmost parts of the world, their response was probably more like this, Samaria? We don't even talk to those half-breeds over there. And by the way, as for the, re- the remote parts of the world, you gotta be kidding me because it's filled with Gentiles. You see, Jews just felt this way because from childhood, they were taught to shun morally unclean Gentiles. Even the culture of the Gentiles was, was off limits. For example, Greek theater, sports, Roman fashion and music was all forbidden because it was seen as being unclean. Well, Jews like Peter, who became Christians, carried on this separatist attitude into their faith, and this made it hard for them to conceive of a Gentile believer in Christ. It was a very difficult thing for them to accept. Now, one or two Gentiles becoming a Christian Like we read with Cornelius and that Ethiopian eunuch, well, that was at least tolerable for some of them. But in their opinions, in their opinion, things got out of hand when Paul and Barnabas returned from that first ever mission trip and told them how God opened the door of faith to all Gentiles. To most Jews, this was just a little bit too much. And it incensed many of the Jewish believers, especially those who had been Pharisees, the so-called guardians of the law. They believed that something had to be done, so they sent emissaries to Antioch saying that enough is enough. If a Gentile was to become a Christian, then he must first become a Jew and be circumcised. Lloyd John Ogilvy helps us to understand their struggle when he writes this. These converted Pharisees and their followers were not bad people. Their problem was that they stood with one foot in Moses' law and one foot in Christ's love. And now the ground was separating beneath them. It's an excellent word picture for us to use here because these Pharisees, these these converted Pharisees, were saying that becoming a Christian was a salvation plus kind of a thing. They were saying you have to have both faith in God's amazing grace, plus you had to be circumcised. And you know, unfortunately, even in our day, many Christians make this same kind of mistake. They say that the grace of God isn't enough that to be a Christian, to be saved, there is something extra that a person must do. For example, they say you have to put your faith in Jesus, but you also have to be baptized. You also have to do good works and serve diligently in your church, or you have to take some kind of catechism classes. But this is wrong because God's word teaches us that we are saved by faith, by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. In his commentary on this passage, R.C.H. Lenski writes this, to add anything to Christ as being necessary to salvation, say circumcision or any human work of any kind, is to deny that Christ is the complete savior. It is to put something human on par with him and to make it the crowning point. That is fatal. You see, a bridge that is built of 99 one-hundredths of Christ and even only one 100th of anything human breaks down at the joint and ceases to be a bridge. Well, Paul and Barnabas, they were spiritually mature enough to understand this foundational principle of our faith. They realized that this issue was something that had to be dealt with. So with the blessing of the other leaders from the church in Antioch, they went to Jerusalem and they went there to meet with Peter and the other apostles, plus with these Pharisee Christians who had complained about the whole subject. And these series of meetings that they had have been called the Jerusalem Council. And as you read the rest of the text, you'll see that the members of this council resolved this conflict by affirming two Basic truths. First, anyone, Jew or Gentile, can be saved. They realize, just as the old hymn says, Whosoever will may come. Because anyone, male, female, Jew, Gentile, anyone can become a Christian. The second thing that the Jerusalem Council affirmed was that Jesus alone can save. Not Jesus plus baptism not Jesus plus circumcision, not Jesus plus catechism, not Jesus plus anything, we are saved through faith in Christ alone. Now, I wanna get back to where we started when we talked about conflict in the church. And I think it's a good time for me to point out that sometimes conflict is necessary. But there are also times, there are also things, should I say, that are not worth fighting about. And I think that we should be able to distinguish between the two. You see, our unity as Christians and our unity as a local church is based upon our mutual acceptance of the essentials. I'm talking about those non-negotiable truths that are grounded in the scriptures. And sometimes, constructive conflict is the only way to correct erroneous human thinking, as was the case here. So again, some conflicts are absolutely necessary, while others aren't, because they only create division and hurt feelings. And this leads me to the second conflict found in Acts chapter 15, in verses 36 through 39. It says, sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, let us go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, John Mark, with him. But Paul did not think it was wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus. This is indeed a sad little story in the history of the early church. But I I believe that the fact that God prompted Luke to include it in his written record of the early New Testament church was, was done so on purpose, and that is because the Bible never flatters its heroes. You know everything about biblical heroes, the good, the bad, and the ugly. I mean, one moment, we read about David bravely slinging a stone at Goliath, and then it isn't too long after that that we see him casting a lustful glance at Bathsheba, and of course, we know how that ended. We admire Peter when we read about him dropping his nets and following Jesus, but we shake our heads as he denies the Lord on the eve of his crucifixion. And we we look up to Paul for his great determination, his great fervor, and we look up to Barnabas for his skills of encouragement. But to be honest, we are embarrassed when we read about their behavior here. They argued so severely that they split. These two giants of the faith, they, they parted company. And as far as we know, they never work together again. However, Paul did apparently make amends. We see it with Mark, who is mentioned positively in Colossians 4.10, when Paul wrote this, my fellow prisoner Aristarchus sends you his greetings, as does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. You have received instructions about him. If he comes to you, welcome him. And then in 2 Timothy 4.11, he writes this, only Luke is with me, get Mark and bring him with you because he is helpful to me in my ministry. But Paul also makes a positive mention of Barnabas in 1 Corinthians at a point where he is expressing his right as an apostle. In 1 Corinthians 9.6, he says, or is it only I and Barnabas who lack the right not to work for a living? This to me would suggest that Paul and Barnabas eventually worked out their differences as well because their relationship, you have to understand, had deeply strong roots when you consider the many labors that they performed together in their missionary service. But as I said, this is just another example of the fact that the scriptures paint the saints in realistic fashion. They are showing us that they were fallible men with headstrong opinions. And sometimes when you have headstrong opinions, there's going to be conflict. G. Campbell Morgan wrote this, I am greatly comforted whenever I read this. I'm thankful for the revelation of the humanity of these men. If I had never read that Paul and Barnabas had a contention, I should have been afraid. These men were not angels, they were men. And I agree because reading this account in God's book is good news. Why is it good news? Because it's comforting on on two different levels. First, because it shows that this is not some made up book, the word of God that we read. It is a book about the truth. And secondly, because it is possible for us to relate to the people that we read about within its pages because they are just like us. And guess what? If God can use them, he can use you too. So with all this in mind, I want to look once again at the scriptures because not only does it record examples of Christian conflict, it also tells us how we are to respond to conflict and disagreements and how to do so where precious Christian fellowship is preserved. I want you to look with me at Matthew chapter 18. If you don't have your Bible, we'll have it up on the screen. Jesus here is offering some basic principles in dealing with conflict. It says, if your brother or sister sins, another translation says, if your brother or sister sins against you, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Now, as we absorb what Jesus is saying here about how to deal with this kind of conflict, we must first understand how important that Christian unity is to our Lord. I mean, we need to get on the same piece of sheet music that Jesus is regarding this. And that means that we need to look at quarreling and gossiping and slander or anything that damages the unity between believers as a totally scandalous thing. You see, the truth is we get very upset by moral failures on the parts, part of believers. When we see a famous minister who has a moral failure, we, we get very upset about that. But on the other hand, many of us just don't care enough about fellowship failures within the body of Christ. What I mean is that often we are not scandalized by a lack of love, but Jesus is. This is very important to him. Love was and is his supreme value. And if he is truly Lord, then it must be our supreme value as well. Remember that Jesus' summation of the total teaching of divine revelation is captured in a single word, love. Love for God love for other people. So the greatest crimes against the kingdom of God then are crimes against love. So if you slander another human being, if you carry a grudge against someone who you think has hurt you, and you gossip about someone before you have even confronted them with the offense that they have created towards you, all of these are a direct violation of this most fundamental command. Do you remember when Jesus prayed for his followers in John 17, 20 through 23, he prayed this. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be as one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. I like what John Ortberg wrote. He said, when we allow conflict to lead us to violate oneness, when we contribute to relational brokenness, It doesn't just affect us. It doesn't just affect the other person. When we do this, we are contributing to the destruction of that which is most prized by God and was purchased by him at the greatest cost, the oneness of the Trinitarian community. We are in a real sense, he says, committing treason against the Trinity. And in Ortberg's book titled, Everybody's Normal Until You Get to Know Them, he offers several principles about conflict that I want to share with you today. That's a great title of a book. And they come directly from Matthew chapter 18. And the first principle is this. We must acknowledge the fact that conflict happens. That's a part of what Jesus was getting at in Matthew 18:15 when he said, if your brother or sister sins against you, go and point out their fault. You see, in this fallen world in which we live, even among Christians, we are going to sin against each other. Conflict is going to happen because in any relationship, even between believers, sinful conflict and our human nature is inevitable. Part of living in this fallen world involves being in conflict. People disagree. People fight. Sometimes they fight a lot. Sometimes they fight a little, sometimes constructively, sometimes destructively, sometimes fairly, and sometimes they hit below the belt. Sometimes fights in well, like the one that led to the Jerusalem council, when other times fights in poorly, like what happened between Paul and Barnabas, these two giants of the faith. But conflict is going to happen, folks, this side, of eternity. And it's important for us to understand this because many of us pretend that conflict doesn't exist. Some Christians act act as if a lack of conflict is a sign of spiritual maturity. But that's not true either. Even mature Christians like Barnabas and, and like Paul have disagreements. In fact, a lack of conflict could be due to apathy. You ever thought about that? I mean, Christians just not caring enough about the absolute truth to stand up and to defend it. Sometimes people care more about peace than they do the truth. Or Christians who don't love a brother or sister enough who has fallen into sin to, to confront them and, and to help them return to living at the center of God's will. In any case... You shouldn't be surprised when conflict rears its ugly head in the church. There will be times when godly people disagree with one another. Well, the second principle that we must understand when it comes to dealing with conflict is this. Everyone must own responsibility when it comes to resolving the issue. If community is to truly be restored, this principle must be followed both the person who has done the wrong and the person who has been wrong. In Matthew 18, Jesus says that if a brother or sister sins against us, we should take the responsibility to go to them and to explain how they have hurt us. This is what Paul and Barnabas did in verses one and two. They went to Jerusalem to confront the people who had the issue with the uncircumcised Christians. And this is good guidance because often people hurt us without even knowing that they hurt us. And we walk around angry if somebody didn't even have a clue that they hurt us. And we don't go to them and we don't try to make things right. And please note, Jesus also taught us that the person who does the wrong should also take responsibility. In Matthew 5, 23 and 24, he said, therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them and come and offer your gift. So Jesus taught that both the sinner and the sinnee, (laughs) both the wrongdoer and the wrongdoee must each take responsibility. I make up words all the time, ask my wife, all the time. Some of them really make her laugh and some of them she just looks at me and shakes her head. He taught this, Jesus taught this because community is just that important to him. And we show that we believe it's important by taking responsibility to deal with relational breakdowns. Now it's important to note that when you take responsibility and and you try to make things right as the one who has sinned or as the one who was sinned against, it doesn't always solve the problem. I'm a realist here. I'm not gonna sugarcoat things for you. It doesn't always solve the problem. Because when the other party fails to to respond in any kind of a way, even after repeated attempts, there really isn't much you can do other than to continue to pray about the situation and pray for that individual. You pray that God will soften their heart enough or to, to at least be open to sitting down and having a, a constructive conversation with you. Now, if that never happens, then you have done what God has required of you. Because it takes two in order for reconciliation to happen. And again, if it doesn't happen, God knows that you made the required effort but you still keep praying that the thing might change. And it can down the road. And this leads me to the third principle that we find in Matthew 18. Don't avoid, but approach the person you are in conflict with. In other words, Jesus says here for us to take action. Don't let resentment fester. We don't usually do this. We tend to avoid people that we are having conflict with. Why do we have such a hard time with this? Well, one reason is it's more fun to pout. How many martyrs do we have in the building today? We'd rather stay put, and we'd rather stew over the situation. Besides, we think if we go, it could get ugly. And I don't know of anybody who likes to deal with ugly. And that's a good thing, I think, to understand up front. I mean, confrontation may not go well, but we shouldn't let that stop us from dealing with it. After all, avoidance kills community and avoidance causes resentment to fester in greater ways. Now, I certainly do think that it is best to first take some time to calm down. Calm down. Calm down. And then I think it's important to prepare. Prepare what you plan to say. That's very, very important. I'm talking about, I'm talking about prayerfully gathering your thoughts before you approach that individual. Because Proverbs 14, 17 says, a quick-tempered person does foolish things. So we do need to calm down first because anger causes us to behave foolishly. It causes what therapists refer to as cognitive incapacitation. In other words, being mad prevents you from thinking straight and I might also add, it prevents you from talking right. (laughs) Things come out of your mouth that shouldn't have come out of your mouth. It's embarrassing. Oh, it's embarrassing, I've been there. In fact, anger has the ability to increase as you experience it and as you dwell upon it. Neil Warren gives us good advice on this when he says, when your inner gauge reads red hot anger, then delay response. Really, really simple. But once we have cooled down, that's when you address the problem. The Apostle Paul said in Ephesians 4.26, in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. In other words, cool down, but don't wait too long. Try to resolve the issue. Because the longer you wait, the worse it's going to get. The longer you wait, the harder it is to fix things. Well, the fourth principle he gives us can be summarized in three words, no third parties. In other words, we are to go directly and only to the person involved and clearly explain explain the problem to them. That is always the last person that we wanna go to, however. So instead of going to the person with whom we have the problem, We prefer to go to somebody else, someone who we can complain to, someone who will get on our side. It's kind of like when nations build a coalition against a world leader. We often go and we gather allies first before we attack. Why? Because we want to win. We're not interested in reconciliation. We're interested in winning. It's the way it is. It seems whenever we're wronged, We wanna go to everybody but the person who has wronged us. So we get lots of people on our side, and in doing so, we are disobeying Jesus' command. We are to go to that person and that person only. No third parties. In Philippians 4.2, Paul is dealing with a feud between two ladies. When he says this, he says, "'I plead with Euodia, and I plead with Syntyche, "'to be of the same mind in the Lord, Apparently, these two women had a disagreement of some kind. We're not sure exactly what it was. Maybe it had to do with who had the weirdest name. I'm not sure. (laughs) But I think it's interesting to note what Paul doesn't advise. He doesn't say, Euodia, Euodia, go and talk to to other people about how unfair Syntyche is being to you thoroughly discuss her character flaws with them and her neuroses so that other people can pray for her in a more effective way. Nor does he say to Sintich, let three or four of your closest friends know how Euodia has mistreated you. This way, they can reinforce your self-righteous sense of martyrdom. No, Paul says, I plead with you to be of the same mind in Christ Jesus. One translation says, I plead to agree with each other. You see, only going to the person limits the damage to just the two of you. It also reduces additional misunderstandings that inevitably inevitably will pop up when you get other people into your dispute with you. In fact, Jesus says that after dealing with this one-on-one, if it has not worked, only then are we to bring in a third party. We'll talk more about that in a minute. The last principle is aim at reconciliation. Remember what Jesus said, he says, if you go to your friend and he listens to you, you have have won your brother or your sister over. You see, the goal of, of conflict resolving issues like this is not to win, it is not to score points, and it's not to have them admit how wrong they were. It's not to be used to make yourself feel better, it's about reconciliation. Your aim should not be to run somebody off, but rather it should be to restore that relationship. Whenever we disagree, we should let our love for one another and our understanding of how precious unity in the body is to compel us to work through this issue. Having said that, I have found that not everyone is ultimately interested in reconciliation. I've seen it too many times to know that to not be the truth. Some people will only feel better when they get a chance to tell someone off. And of course, that feeling that they get, the euphoria that they get for doing that lasts about a millisecond, but then the harsh reality sets in and they end up being miserable forever. And I say forever because what they've said and done after what they've said and done to that person, they don't feel comfortable meeting with them again because they just ripped them up one side and down the other and said some things that they regretted that they said. And so what they do is they break fellowship with that person, and if it's a church friend, they will often break fellowship with the church that they love because they don't wanna have to go into the same place where that person they're trying to avoid is, and that is sad indeed. I say this from experience. Because being a pastor has put me in a position where I've been called upon to try to bring peace between two opposing parties. And before I have those meetings, my instructions are that this is not a time for any of us to rehash the story. This is simply a time for us to get together and to forgive one another and to rebuild fellowship. Even after saying that, some people will follow the rules and others won't. They just have this need to rehash everything that happened ad nauseum, And what they need to do is to humble themselves and understand how harmful this whole situation has become for everyone who is involved, including the body. I was once asked to play a part in bringing reconciliation between two parties who were unable to do it on their own. My attempts at bringing both parties together failed for for several reasons, and because of it, one of the parties turned on me, and I became the target of their frustration and of their anger, so much so that pretty much the majority of the family left our church. So I called the family member who was involved in the original conflict, but my calls were never returned. I followed up with a formal letter and I apologized and I asked for forgiveness for anything that I had caused them trouble and my inability to bring everybody together and my letter was not responded to. And now not only has fellowship been broken between these two parties, but fellowship has been broken within their church family and fellowship has been broken with their pastor who I believe they used to love. So I'm very aware that not everyone is aiming for reconciliation. Not everyone is willing to sit down and talk things out. And that's when it becomes difficult. And honestly, that is when it hurts the most. And I grieve over these kinds of situations. I guess the point I'm trying to make is that God knows your heart. He knows in good faith if you have made an effort. And even if you returned empty handed with your effort, you did what Christ would require of you. And then in, and in those cases, when you have tried to do the right thing and it didn't end well, the end result now rests on that individual. So if you are in conflict with another person, and if you follow Matthew 18, if you first acknowledge the conflict, if you take responsibility for resolving the issue, if you approach the person that you are in conflict with, if you keep it between you and them, no third parties, and you aim at reconciliation, if after doing all of that God asks of you, it still doesn't work, Jesus says to follow one more step in Matthew 18, and I touched on it here just a second ago. He says, but if they will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. And I think that that is wisdom, because if it's gotten that far, that a person will not respond, you know darn well you need witnesses to what's being said in that meeting. Because if they've let it go this far in decline, they're gonna let it all hang out at that particular time. And so that's why you need to have witnesses there. Sometimes this works, folks. Many times it works. Other times it doesn't. Like what I explained to you in my situation. But either way, here's the deal. You can look yourself in the mirror and know that you did the right thing because you followed the scriptures. But there will be times when you will do everything right and you will do your best to follow biblical standards, and it still may not work. This is not because Jesus' suggestions here are wrong. They are the truth, they are right, they are the only way. Maybe anger is still clouding their judgment. Maybe they are the type of people that need a much longer period of time for the jets to cool down and to be able to speak coherently with one another. Maybe it's pride that prevents them from humbling themselves and overlook the offense and look towards reconciliation instead. And and listen, I don't understand people all the time and you don't either. We're complex. We'll never figure everybody out. But I think it is important that we hold everyone to the same biblical standard. And if for whatever reason, they're not willing to, to meet the standard, it really now becomes an issue between them and the Lord. It's really no longer about you. You understand that it's bigger than just your conflict. It becomes an unforgiving heart between them and God. They can't, they can't seem to do that. So just like Paul and Barnabas, we don't always immediately aim at reconciliation. We don't work for peace. Sometimes we just wanna to go to war. It happens a lot. Well, Jesus says no. He says that our goal in situations like this must always be to win over your brother, to win over your sister in the Lord. You know, I am fairly certain that most of us in this place have been, or even right now, are involved in some kind of a personal conflict. And if this applies to you, then I encourage you to turn on that mental microphone right now and, and talk to God about the situation. Commit to go to that person or those persons, that spouse, that parent, that, that child, that employee, that boss, that coach, that fellow church member, that pastor, and do what it takes to make peace with them and try to resolve the conflict. Scott, will you guys come forward and help me to close this down? What I wanted to say this morning was that God takes unity in the church very seriously. And of all people, we Christians should be able to get along. Let me assure you that this sermon is not something that I made up because there's conflict going on in this church. This is just where we're at in the book of Acts. So so in case you're wondering, wow, what's going on? Is there this big thing going on in High Point? There's not. But I'm smart enough to know that there's little conflicts going on in everybody's life. And this is truth. This is truth that we, that we need. So I, I wanna get that straight right now because everybody's probably thinking something. Don't, don't let your mind go crazy. And even though there is to be unity, understand that that doesn't mean having no disagreements. Because as I said earlier, disagreements are gonna happen. It, but it does mean maintaining our love for one another even during these difficult times. I have found that whenever we're unable or we're unwilling to do this, it's really a matter of our human pride. And I've got it, I confess. Pride wells up in me. Sometimes I don't wanna do things that I know I'm supposed to do. And if you're honest, you'd say the same thing. Sometimes it's hard to admit we're wrong. Sometimes it's hard to love when we've had conflict with somebody else because our mind flips this switch and now we view them as an adversary. But they're not our adversary. They are a brother or a sister in Christ. They are people who said the wrong thing in the wrong way at the wrong time. And sometimes it's nothing more than just that. So I believe Jesus would be saying to all of us today, don't let something so small, create division between you and them. And don't start talking to others about them and surround yourself with people who will side with you because when you do that, you are now the one who is in the wrong. You are now the one who is sinning against your brother. There is such a fine line between the hurt you feel and the prideful thing that rises up in you and says, they're gonna pay for this. They're gonna pay for this. And then you go out and you, you turn others against them, and you get them involved in a dispute that has nothing to do with them. Instead, Jesus is saying, own it. Go to the individual with a humble heart and a humble approach, and this is so vitally important because if you go to them carrying a chip on your shoulder, you're sunk. In fact, you go in there by first admitting your part and asking them to forgive you for the part that you played, even if you do not think that you sinned against them. This will diffuse the situation immediately and almost always the person will follow suit and they will respond in the same way. In my years in ministry, numerous times I've had to ask for forgiveness from people when I did not sin against them, but I've done it in order to keep unity between us. It's not always easy, but when I look back on it, it is what was required in order to bring healing to the situation. And every time I have done that, except two times, relationships were restored. By the way, the other two, I still pray about. And I believe that in time, God will sort it all out. I am certainly willing to be a part of that. But in the meantime, it allows me to walk around and to know that what I did was right in God's eyes. And truthfully, folks, he is the one that every one of us should want to please. Not people, we should want to please the Lord. So today, today I want to open this altar I wanna spend some time together praying, specifically about one thing, personal conflict, conflicts that we have with other people. Maybe as I've been speaking today, someone's, someone's face has popped into your mind in your head and you know that things are not right between the two of you. They are a brother, or sister in the Lord and somehow things have gotten sideways. Maybe it's a church member, family member, a parent, a child, a spouse, a coworker. It doesn't really matter. What matters is you need to try to mend what's broken. And maybe you need some help in trying to figure it all out and coming to this altar and seeking wisdom and guidance from God might be the best, best investment of your time. Maybe you need to ask the Holy Spirit to give you a little bit extra strength to do what you don't really wanna do so that you can start down that road of reconciliation with him. I also feel led to point out this morning that if you are here and you are not a Christian, then in a very real sense, my friend, you are in conflict with God himself. In Romans 5.10, it refers to non- non-Christians as God's enemies. And then it goes on to say, Jesus came to die for our sins and through the cross reconcile us to God. Jesus came to be our mediator before a holy and righteous God. So I encourage you this morning to utilize that truth. Come down to this altar, ask Jesus to forgive you of your sin, invite him into your heart, invite him into your life, and be reconciled to the one who created you. There is no relationship more important than this one. Maybe you're here today and you have some kind of a need could be a financial need, a relational need, emotional need. You may have a physical need. You may be sick. Your body it, it has, a, has an illness. Well, come to this altar. Lay that down at the foot of the cross. Turn it over to Jesus. Let him manage this as only he can do. Or maybe you're here today and you're, things are going great. You're riding a wave of contentment like you haven't in a long, long time. Well, you know what? This altar is a place for praise too. You come down here, just raise your hands and praise God and thank him for his goodness and his faithfulness to you. So while the worship team sings, let's spend some time at this altar with the Lord for whatever need you have today. And then I will return and we will close the service in prayer. Now are you hurting and broken sin?
1: Overwhelmed by the weight of your sin, Jesus is called. Have you come to the end of yourself? Do you thirst for a drink from the well? Jesus is called. Oh will come to The altar the father's arms are open wide Forgiveness was bought with come today there's no reason to wait jesus is called bring it to him bring your sorrows and trade them for joy from the ashes a new life is born oh is called
0: to pray and they can stay here as long as they would like go ahead and close this service in prayer if you bow your heads with me father we thank you for this beautiful day you've given us we thank you for this church family called high point thank you for your many blessings for your faithfulness to us that you are so good to us in so many many ways and we give you praise and honor and glory and we thank you for your word And we thank you that your word is not tainted, but it is truthful. It tells of true life situations among real people of which we are. If it was a story of of all things being perfect, God, it would be a hard story for us to follow. But you make it real. Your life was real. Your ministry was real. Your power is real. Everything about you is real. And you can transform our lives like nothing else. And we've seen it. And we thank you for it. And so God, as we look at our transformed lives in Christ Jesus, one of those things is to keep peace among us, among each other. And I pray that we would be a people of peace, that we would be a people that would take care of conflict quickly and not let problems fester, that we would have the courage to go to one another and talk things out in the love of Christ and maintain unity and bring us back together again. This is your body. We all play a part in it. And when one of us is gone, a part is missing. And so we don't want to lose any pieces of this body. We want to keep ourselves together and strong and walking towards you, Father. So I pray that you would bless every man and woman in this place. I pray that you would help every uh, difficult situation that may be going on in our lives between us and other people where reconciliation needs to happen and you would allow things to fall into place for us to have those tough discussions and we could get on the other side of it, Father. That's our desire. So I pray that you would strengthen us to be able to do that and to follow the steps in your word and make it a reality in our lives today. And God, as we go our separate ways today, I pray that your Holy Spirit would go with us guiding and directing our steps, the places we go, the things we do, the conversations that we have, and that those conversations would be designed to build people up and not tear them down. Father, my prayer is that we would shine like bright lights in a very dark world. So we would shine so brightly that people would know that there is something different about us and they would even ask us and we would be able to share your goodness and your truth with them. Father, I pray between now and the time we gather together again, you would keep us safe from sickness, from disease, from any accidents that might befall us, till we join together again and worship you in spirit and in truth. And as we go our separate ways today, Father, I pray that we would go in the love of Christ. And I ask these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen and amen. Thank you for being here today.